I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. All right, Andrew Baker, welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast. Hey. Uh, thank you so much for coming out, man. When sure. I started doing this, and kind of putting it together and sort of imagining the kinds of people that I wanted to talk to. You were pretty pretty high on the list of, of people I wanted to speak to. I thought about some of the conversations you and I had, and I was thinking that's that's definitely a guy I could talk to about therapy. He's going to have a lot of interesting things to say. So I'm excited that you're here. Thank you. All right. So just a little bit about um, our shared history. I met you at a very random very random day. I um, I was in private practice. I didn't have a lot going on. I was new to private practice. Yeah. My friend James Feda, who was doing clinical outreach for the Comprehensive Wellness Center, the facility at which you are the clinical director, mm-hmm. he invited me out to tour and check things out. He said, I want you to meet our clinical director, Andrew Baker. He's a really smart guy and a really interesting guy. I think you're going to like him. And... We, I went out there with no expectations. We met, we talked. That conversation went about an hour and a half, yeah. <laughs> which was probably about an hour and 15 minutes longer than I planned for. You and me both. In my experience, people who are as clinically astute as you and the high level of intelligence are often not as engaging and easy to talk to. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, because of the acuity level of a lot of the patients that you treat in that program, because it is comorbid, you have a lot of high psych population there. Oh, yeah. The kinds of people that are coming to that program and the complicated questions someone would want to ask if they had lifetime comorbid psych substance use disorders had suffered and struggled to be able to get in front of someone who could explain things who had the intellect and the clinical acumen to explain and understand these things and was engaging enough to do it in a human level and Mm -hmm. i feel like you you're you're clearly that guy i appreciate that man and yeah i think and that's really high praise because that's really my goal i mean for me it's like i think so often in the kinds of spaces like comprehensive wellness centers, like you said, there's plenty of people who are intelligent enough to do the work or know the concepts or know the science or whatever the case is, but they don't know how to make it digestible. And they, I think, don't often focus on being relatable. Like, I don't even know if they're interested in that because it's more of that kind of medical model top down you know, sort of perspective. And I think that's why so often in our field, it ends up being more peer support that is among the most important, which I still believe. But at the same time, I think that's what works so well about it. So I appreciate that because it's very much my goal. 
by the way, Andrew is uh, a university professor at Florida Atlantic University, the Department of Counselor Education. Uh, you are a counselor educator and mm -hmm. supervisor, doctoral level. And so you have published original research on this very subject, mm -hmm. the subject of interpersonal relationships, the value of the relational element of psychotherapy, the relational element between the psychotherapist and the client, and how these relationships, how these interactions could actually be coded mm -hmm. in a way that makes it predictable of, of, of outcomes. Right. And that, that's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, really, I started that work uh, largely with Dr. Paul Peluso, who at the time was the chair of the Department of Counselor Education. And I started doing that research with him actually before I started practicing. So I always joke with people, I've actually been a professional scientist longer than I've been a professional counselor. <laughs> and uh, I really, you know, once I started that work with him, I was like, oh, this is this is it. Like I, I, I thought I had that idea of like, this is why I want to do counseling, but I didn't really know what that meant. And I think like a lot of us early in our careers, I didn't know the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist and, you know, all these sorts of things and found professional counseling was, you know, what I wanted to do. The art of psychotherapy is what I was interested in. And I think, you know, our assumption, both as a research lab and my assumption personally is that's it. It starts and ends with the relationship that, of course, like we have to be scientific. And, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about this like dual role that we serve. Of we're supposed to be these like very scientific clinical diagnosticians. Yet in an hour, a couple hours, we're supposed to connect with somebody to the extent that they're willing to tell us their deepest, darkest secrets and the the hardest things that they've lived. And it's a very tricky balance to be getting all of that information um, and at the same time, genuinely connecting with somebody. Hit me with the Carl Jung quote. <laughs> yeah, so one of the quotes that I kind of like wrapped my dissertation with in, in our research, he says that he tells every beginner, learn your theories as well as you can, but put them aside when you touch the miracle of the living soul. And I believe that's our goal as a lab in reality is like, and that's a lot of what we're doing. We want to look at theories. We want to look at, you know, all the different parts of therapy, but we really want to understand and digest what is the therapeutic relationship and how do we improve it? Um, we know it impacts outcomes. We know it's, you know, super critical to people even returning to therapy, yet there's really a pretty small amount of research on like, what is it? How do we operationalize it? How do we change it? How do we study it? How do we improve it? All those kinds of things. And it's, uh, it's difficult. How do you break apart a human relationship and make it, you know, uh, digestible enough to, to have it a bite at a time. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that really fascinated me about this whole process, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm a, I'm a career mental health counselor. I've been a psychotherapist for better than 20 years. Mm -hmm. And every good psycho, all the people that I respect, all my colleagues that I respect the most and people whose work I admire the most, we all universally agree yep. that it's the relationship, the ability to bond, form relationships, all of those things supersede in a way mm -hmm. technical acumen. 
Mm-hmm. I think most people agree on some level. Look, I mean, what you really want is a balance of both. Mm-hmm. We always come back to the relationship being the magic. Yeah. So the idea that you've delved into this in an academic way to where you're making this thing measurable, that the relationship between psychotherapist and client, something that we had considered before to be so abstract, that it's actually measurable in a way. Right. And could be quantified. Mm -hmm. And quantified in a way that it could predict outcomes of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. Yeah. And, and And that's really like our hope. And we've already obviously made some progress, which you kind of made reference to you know, the article that came out of my dissertation, but also a previous article that we published in 2017 that really focuses on that concept that, you know, even though we're not yet to the point where we're really kind of in real time or ahead of time predicting outcomes, we've already kind of figured out how to categorize the return and dropout categories with a a pretty high percentage, which again, that's something that, which really our research grew out of John and Julie Gottman's work in the marital relationship, which a lot of folks may be familiar with that, that they really have predicted whether or not somebody's going to get divorced with about 90% accuracy. You know, when when you're getting into those ranges of knowing if somebody's going to be together or not, you know, years down the line, we kind of thought, I mean, that was Paul's really original idea in that first conversation he had with John Gottman. Well, if you can do it in marriages, why can't we do it in therapy? And if we can, then hopefully we can learn those elements to why people aren't coming back. Because a lot of people don't realize that still the modal number of sessions is one. We know without a shadow of doubt that therapy works. It typically has something like a 0.8 effect size, which just means 80% of the time people are going to get better. So if we know that it works so well, then why are people not returning? For us, the only conclusion can be, doesn't matter how smart you are, how good your theory is or whatever else. If I can't connect with you, if I don't relate with you, if I can't trust you in this very short period of time that you're actually engaged and care about the work that we're doing together, the rest doesn't really matter. Because if people don't show back up, which fundamentally that's part of it, right? Like You have to have some level of commitment and connection to the work. If you don't trust me to show back up, if, if I can't engage you in the process enough, um, the rest doesn't matter. Because nobody, you know, maybe not nobody, but for the most part, people are going to get better in one session. They're not going to get better in two or three sessions, um, especially at the kind of acuity work that I do most of the time and that, you know, you and a lot of us do in this field. You know, it's going to take a lot of time. And if we can't connect with people at that human level, um, they're not going to come back, which means they're not going to get better. Well, to the point of the research, right, and the whole conversation, it takes a a little time to build a relationship. Right. Every meaningful relationship I've had was cold over a period of interactions. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always leery of anybody who would be like my instantaneous best friend. Sure. You know? So therapeutic relationship kind of mirrors, models that as well, Mm -hmm. right? And, And so you have to have few few visits at least to establish that and to be able to create that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. So throughout your research, throughout the papers, there is this term affectual interaction. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, and from what I gleaned from what I was reading, that of the different aspects 
of the interactions between therapist and client, the affectual interaction was one of the most important and possibly predictive of successful outcomes. Yeah, I mean, for us, that that's really just kind of like the thermometer in a sense, like that's the measure itself, which really you know, started with Paul Ekman, which some people are familiar with Paul Ekman because they made a show kind of based off of his life, loosely, like very loosely called Lie to Me. But this guy is really like this, you know, face reader. And because of that, he can kind of predict, you know, human interaction. And he, you know, it's really like this uh, almost like a crime drama kind of concept. But in reality, Paul Ekman was a psychologist who really discovered and quantified facial expressions as being connected to culturally universal emotion. And the reason that that matters is that was then the basis for John and Julie Gottman's work, which then became the basis for our work. And so we've known for, you know, a good, I don't know, 50, 60 years now that we show things on our face with our nonverbals, with our interaction, with the content of our voice, but also just even like the the vocal tone and all of these kinds of constructs, we know that these are things that show our authentic self. And even to the extent that Paul Ekman in particular really focused a lot in hidden emotion, which is what most people know him for, that even if we try to hide it, we show what's called leakage. So you can actually, even if we are trying not to show how we really feel, we can't help it as humans. The term resting bitch face, yeah. <laughs> is, is that real? <laughs> so it's interesting. I mean, I, so everybody has a baseline. So we always like in any of our coding. So whether you're doing like the Paul Ekman, he, it was actually called the facial action coding system, um, which still is like a very micro second by second. But even in SPAF coding, which is the specific effect coding system, which is what we currently use an updated version of that, which is what the Gottman's used. You have to get the baseline first and the best example of something that's really culturally universal of like you know somebody's just like not that into you is what we call a unilateral cheek puller so that's if you see like the little corner of somebody's mouth kind of draw back just one of them and we all have one it's either right or left it's kind of similar to an eye roll and we've actually found that that's culturally universal so i always let people know that one, because if somebody's like nodding along and acting like they're really in, but they hit that quick cheek puller, you know, that's contempt. That is that is culturally universal contempt, which means, again, that leakage kind of tells us something that's no different than anger as well, though, which is that quick head tilt with a furrowed eyebrow. People do it. I mean, we're talking a tenth of a second, but they'll be laughing. Oh, it's not funny. It's whatever. And they hit you with that quick anger, a quick contempt. And it's like you can you can pick up on things even as small as that. I need to back up a second. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'd like to talk more. It's a uh, unilateral. Un- cheek sorry. Yeah. Unilateral. <laughs> oh, meaning one side. Right. Unilateral cheek puller. That's right. Okay. So that's that's that contempt, which again, another one is an eye roll. And 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 even an eye roll is pretty culturally universal. Um, so when Ekman really originally did that research, I mean he was this was again 60 years ago plus at this point, and he actually went into like tribal regions where nobody had been exposed to Western culture. People had never seen a camera, they'd never seen an image like on paper. Um And they're showing people different things. And one of the classic examples is like, no matter where in the world, if you see somebody or if you show somebody like a rotting pig carcass, they will 
disgust will be on their face, which you guys both started to do that. Even now you both started to pull your nose. And we think there's like some evolutionary nature to that where we're like trying to close our nose because when something's disgusting, it's like potentially noxious. So it's like all these things that are really like baked into just the human condition, um, which I think is just like kind of a beautiful concept in general, because it shows like we all may be like different in a whole lot of ways, but there's some ways that we're just not that different when it comes to these like base emotions. I like that it's the the rotting pig carcass. That's yeah. the universe. That's the go to. <laughs> that's the go to. It's probably like any rotting carcass, but gotcha. <laughs> like, you know, like but people see those things and they all like kind of react the same way, and that's really part of the basis of our research. Like at its, you know, when you really boil it all down, there the fact that it is this really more culturally universal kind of thing because it's really difficult obviously to again make something as complex as measuring any relationship objective and and uh that's why we landed on spaf because spaf for its elements um and what is spaf so that's the specific effect coding system so that's basically it's 20 discrete uh negative and positive emotions although one of them is neutral um, some of them I just talked about, like contempt, anger, sadness, but also things like joy, surprise, um, and something we see a lot in counseling, which is like high validation. Um, what you just did, for example, was interest. You asked an open-ended question. An open-ended question would be a show of interest. So we literally have these, you know, codes in front of us on a keyboard, and they're all, you know, we know the where the keys are, and we're watching therapy in real time. But again, they were all, they also did this with couples as well. And we're just, you know, hitting the key as we see the code. So our baseline's neutral, but then, you know, you would ask that question and I would quickly hit interest and coded a couple seconds of interest and then kind of moved on. And then as I'm talking, you're kind of nodding your head, that's low validation. So as you nod along and are showing that you're engaged in the discussion, I would be on low validation and then back to neutral. And so we're literally coding all of this, I mean, in in real time over the course of these hour sessions, um, which are really because of coder fatigue are broken down to 15 minute segments that we're, you know, creating all of these data points. Once we have the data points, we do all kinds of different stuff with it. But that's the place we start. And then the minute I do a unilateral cheek pull, yeah, pig carcass nose, <laughs> or eye roll. Yeah, it's a quick contempt you know, or disgust. You know that I'm not being genuine with my validation. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Um, so, Very interesting. And those are hard things to pick up on, which that's why like part of the reason people don't do this work is because it's so work intensive. And that's why we're really one of the only functional labs left in the world. Like even John and Julie Gottman's lab isn't really functioning as much. So once their gold standard trainer trained us, me and my colleagues became that gold standard trainer and we started training other people Um so we're, you know, there's only a handful of people really doing this. So I'm thinking about my early training. I am an alumni of Florida Atlantic University's counselor education program. It was a lot different. We weren't doing <laughs> yeah. any of this. <laughs> I'm sure. almost in a way envious of your students for mm -hmm. the opportunity to learn at this level mm -hmm. and 
how well prepared they are. Yeah. And I saw evidence of that because you actually have a few of them mm-hmm. that are employed at Comprehensive Wellness. So Absolutely. it continues. You, you worked with them as students in the program at FAU, and now they're working under your supervision at Comprehensive Wellness Center. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with these people. I've worked, you know, I've seen their work. A very talented group. All mm-hmm. of them, I'd say to a person, each of them was well beyond what you would expect of their level of experience. Completely in, agreed. In terms of what they can, just in terms of who they can work with and what they can actually do. Yeah. And and I think that's like the uniqueness of what we've developed at CWC is really based on that training teaching model, which was really I and my colleagues, you know, pipe dream that we thought would come 20, 30 years you know, down into our career, I never imagined that I would be less than 10 years in my career and really be developing this kind of teaching and training hospital. And it's really been, it's just unbelievable how much that model pushes everybody in the system to be on their game. Because like, if I'm doing a group and I've got, you know, a student watching me, not to say that I wouldn't try if they weren't there or whatever the case is, but Having all of these folks around, which at this point we're working, I think, with, I don't know, seven or eight different universities. So we actually have students from all over Florida. Um, But we kind of all push each other to grow. I mean, they're looking to us for our experience, which I and a few of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Patricia Diaz is the assistant clinical director and Dr. Rob Freund is the training coordinator. And all of us have our PhDs from FAU in counselor education. And we're all have been doing research in this lab for a decade. Um, So under that kind of model, we're all pushing each other and pushing our students you know, to, to grow and do new and unique things. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I get the, the envy because for me, it was like an amazing opportunity to get to watch and code hundreds of hours of therapy before I even did any therapy. So I came in and again, remember, we're not just coding. We did code, you know, master level therapist, very experienced therapist. And even from some of the APA videos and stuff, that's what my dissertation was on. Um, but we were also coding, uh, counseling from the university center there at FAU. So the the uh, counseling and psychological services center at FAU allowed us to record. And that's really where our research started. So we were also coding interns and just like normal career therapists and people of all these different skill levels. And it's like when you get to watch real therapy, like not TV nonsense and not even like the staged APA instructional videos, which is what most people like cut their teeth on. Um, we also got to watch real therapy and it was an incredible, you know, it's just such a unique opportunity because obviously because of confidentiality, it's very rare that you get to see real therapy before you're kind of starting your training. So a lot of us from the lab, which we call the Alliance lab based on, you know, the, the therapeutic Alliance, um, we just got to watch so much therapy and we got to see some really cool interventions and how to do it right and how to connect in this authentic way. And we got to see some not so great stuff, too. And and all of those lessons were things that we thankfully got before we were doing them ourselves. So let me ask you this question. I think we've all seen it and you probably have had have to address this fairly routinely. Mm hmm. When you're dealing with somebody, a therapist who just 
doesn't intuitively have the thing. Mm-hmm. You see them struggle to connect because you're going to pick up on that. Sure. Literally through like these objective measures. To me, it's a different kind of thing. But you're looking at it through these objective measures. I'm I'm looking at it more of a subjective way of like, oh, this, you know, I work with this guy. He doesn't really seem to connect with his clients. When you see it happening, how do you address it? What's mm-hmm. the feedback? What does that look like? So, well, I'll first say, like, we haven't really used SPAF as a supervisory tool. That's actually one of our overarching goals. And actually, that's Rob, who I had just mentioned. That's really his ultimate dream is to be using this more as like a real time supervisory kind of thing. And all of us have kicked around this idea of like our big pipe dream in the future is this idea that which we're actually working on some AI stuff and deep learning stuff with some of these people that are way smarter than me when it comes to the math and engineering side of things in our lab. Um, we dream of the day when we have like basically a readout in real time of the, you know, the SPAF uh, codes so that you can see 15 minutes into a session, like, how's this going? And it's like, I imagine that day where, which when we started talking about this, it was like, there's like a printout of what's going on. But we dream of the day when it's like, you can glance at your Apple watch or something like that. And it's like, you know, where the session is going, or you could kind of take a break and sort of like the um, solution focused brief therapy model where it's like, you kind of have a break and you go out and you kind of like, look at how things are going and, and can adjust. Um, and I say that just to say like, that to me is where I would want to go. But honestly, right now, like we haven't been able to do that yet. So as a supervisor, when I see the things that I see or hear the things that I hear when I'm listening to tape or even just discussing how things are going and I can feel from the therapist in training, like they're not, they're missing something. Like they're not like this person isn't trusting them or they're not quite connecting. Um, You know, a lot of times it's just, I'm just letting people know, hey, like set your stuff aside. Like I tell all of my students, like whenever that's a very important it is. set your stuff aside. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that actually means to you? Sure. And yeah, feel free to stop me if I get on a roll. You know how I can get. Um, so, uh, yeah, for me, it's like this idea of a lot of times when people are coming into the room, all of us like we're coming in with our personalities and our preconceived notions about relationships and obviously all of our trauma and baggage and all of those sorts of things. And we don't realize, but we just like every other human is projecting and judging and all of those kinds of things. And I'm constantly reinforcing with the students as do my colleagues. Like when you get in that room, like you got to let that stuff go, which you really can't unless you've done that work, which we've all probably I think a lot of us heard the phrase, like, you can't take a client further than you've been. And well, that's a really important point, right? Because I think that's the difference in yeah. my experience between the, because a lot of people are, you don't need to have had therapy to be a therapist. You can be trained. Everything, mm. every, everything you need to learn can be taught. My argument to that is, but we don't know what we don't know. Right. And, our, it's our own stuff that actually can interfere with the process, right? right? And I think the difference between therapists who have done their own work versus those who don't is that the ones who've done their own work were more readily 
able to recognize like counter-transference. Mm-hmm. I know if somebody I'm working with is kicking up something for me. Mm-hmm. And it could be something very positive. It could be something very yeah. warm and caring. Or it could also be something that I don't like. Yeah, and I and I agree. And I've I've told many of my students, like, I think pretty much anybody could become a good counselor with good training, good supervision, you know, good work ethic, all these kinds of things. Like you can become a good counselor. I, I do, however, think there is a smaller group that will become great counselors. And I think there's an even smaller group who will become obviously truly exceptional. And I also completely agree and fundamentally believe that mostly has to do with the level of personal work that you've done, that you can read every article and know every academic piece of information. But if you can't break it down, if you can't meet your client where they are, if you can't understand even their developmental level and and meet them where they're at um, and, and even beyond that, if you don't have the courage and willingness to be transparent and authentic and disclosing when appropriate and all of these kinds of things that honestly go like nearly undiscussed in graduate training, uh, you're never going to be a great counselor. As your research kind of demonstrates, I mean, really what you sought to prove was it's the relational dynamic that Mm -hmm. is most significant in predicting outcomes. If I have a lot of my own unfinished business, I've not done my own work, where is that going to leave me on an interpersonal level in terms of my ability to connect with people, foster meaningful relationships, be in relationship with people consistently, communicate, solve disagreements, all of those things, if I don't have those skills in my personal life? Right. Yeah, I, I, and you know, again, at this point, like the way that we talk about things, whether it's DBT skills or some of that, like act authenticity or, you know, all these different theoretical concepts that we discuss as that we discuss them as theoretical concepts. But if you don't dig through yourself, you know, and that's not just obviously in therapy, but that's reflection and reading and mindfulness practice and all of these kinds of things that I would argue all of us should be doing early and often and throughout our career, even things like supervision that a lot of people don't, you know, especially in their little private practices or different corners of the field, they kind of go into their holes and they just keep doing the same thing. And one of my mentors always used to say, you can have 20 years of experience or you can have one year of experience 20 times. And that I think is, is largely decided by you know, are we really going to dig into ourselves and, and figure out the context? And again, without ego or anything else, like we are the context. If, if therapists are going to be imbued with the power that they are imbued with and not act like that is what it is, like we have this, you know, power that we're given in in the relationship dynamic. If we don't seek to, in my mind, do our best to kind of correct that imbalance or rebalance it, we're not entering uh, in an equitable way into the relationship. About a year into private practice, I went into supervision with a woman by the name of Rachel Starr, Mm. and she is an EMDR consultant. And I was already EMDR trained, practicing EMDR, practicing it fairly effectively, 
doing EMDR work at Comprehensive Wellness mm-hmm. Center, you know, routinely with clients. Yeah. Having some decent outcomes with it. And I went into supervision with her to get the advanced EMDRIA certified EMDR practitioner. And I did it for all of those reasons mm-hmm. because I feel like we're always at our best when we take the position of learner, mm-hmm. no matter how long you've been doing something. I just know that about myself. I'm willing to pay for that. Mm-hmm. In everything I do, I just know that it's best to take the position of learner, have the humility sure. to be willing to learn from someone else, to be redirected by other people, to be able to be open to that, and that you'll always be elevating. And that even with 20 years practice, there's still opportunities to elevate. There's still opportunities mm-hmm. to like learn and grow. Well, and that's, you know, the science is constantly changing. The research is constantly changing. I mean, again, that's one of the the beautiful and terrifying things of being in a field that's only realistically 100 years old. Um, I mean, we are relative to other fields of, of practice and uh, just science in general. We're pretty young. Um, so that idea of like, yeah, if you're, you know, 20 years in again, like that's compared to the 100, 120 year history of the field. Like there's been a lot of change happen. I mean, I I talk to my students a lot about some of these things that we're treating now, whether it be, you know, complex traumas or addiction or uh, personality disorders of various types. Like these things, even, you know, 30, 40 years ago were considered untreatable. You know, 60 years ago, we literally didn't even know how to define them. We didn't even have definitions. We didn't even uh, really understand. I mean, we were still labeling things in all of these like culturally inappropriate ways and all of these kinds of concepts. So it's like you think about how new all of this is. And if you're not willing to learn and change, then, you know, in my mind, you're you're not paying attention and you're definitely in the wrong field like this has to be a growth oriented field like that's what we're teaching and preaching all day if you're not willing to open yourself up and enter into a change process yourself how are you going to expect other people to do it yeah there's a lot of truth to that so and that's and i talk a lot about a lot of different kinds of philosophy because i do a lot of reading in philosophy and i joke with uh, both my clients and my students, I really actually wanted to be a philosopher. That was like my goal in life, but it turns out that's not like really a thing anymore. So this is kind of like what I imagine to be the closest thing to like a philosopher, like a practical philosopher that I could become. So in reading a lot of philosophy and religion and, and culturally laden things and, uh, I, I always end up coming back to like the Tao Te Ching and some of these like oldest kind of religious and spiritual sorts of documents. And it's like, that's kind of what you're talking about or what we're like discussing here is that concept of the uncarved block that like we're all, no matter how much we know, if we don't keep that like curiosity and openness to changing and learning, I again, I, I think this is just not the field for us. <laughs> Do we have philosophers left in our culture that's a good question man i don't and and who would it be i know i i don't know and that's like and that's like from what i hear like from my clients on a daily basis like again like the philosophers that they're looking to are 
folks like Joe Rogan and, <laughs> you know, like the, the kind of what in our current like media and culture, those are the people that people are listening to. And I don't blame them. They're tremendously engaging in uh, all of those sorts of things. But like even that, it's like if that is kind of what our philosophy has become at this point, like I think we as counselors, especially for people that, you know, in very recent history and even now, it would be, you know, clergy and and religious folks. And so for a lot of people, especially like a lot of, you know, this generation and the next, they're still searching for all of those like philosophical and existential answers. But if they don't have clergy or other folks to turn to, they often end up feeling empty in my experience. And they feel like they're not getting answers to those questions. And to me, that ends up being the importance of this really relational, but also really existentially kind of driven therapy uh, in general, because this is where folks are coming to learn about themselves. Yeah. If you, if you don't do your own work and you're not learning, uh, it's real easy to like stray from the path. Yeah. <laughs> you end up just paying attention to the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't get it. When I was in my training, I was really like blessed with some like pretty amazing mentors uh, in this field. And I didn't understand. And I think at some level, I didn't believe a lot of the things that they would tell me when they talked about things like, yeah, you'll get to that point where it's like, you kind of know there's like two or three things that you can say, like a client says something and you know, you have like two or three therapeutic paths in front of you and you kind of got to pick the one that you want to head in. And even that concept of like imagining that at some point I would have that kind of a handle on a conversation just totally overwhelmed me. Like I thought that that was just like total bullshit that they were like, oh, you get to that point where you're like, okay, I can go this way or I can go that way. And if I'm really paying attention, if I'm really present and I'm like kind of knowing where I need to go, I'm going to pick that path. But it's that concept of like there's few options in the mind of the master. And I don't think I'm there yet, like where my mentors were, but I think I've gotten a lot closer to where it's like somebody says something or they ask a question or they tell a story or whatever. And I'm like, I know there's like only a few paths I can pick. And I agree with you that if we're not mindful, if we're not, you know, aware of who we are in the context of us as a person, relationally, we're going to get lost and we're just going to kind of Again, I'm all for following the client's lead, and I very much think we should. But if they're just wondering wherever and we're just following them around, I, I don't always know if that makes sense either when you think about the fact that like we have a job to do. If you're really just straight up connecting with somebody and whatever, sure, go wherever they go. But the whole idea is they're coming to us for something. Um, so that's that tricky. That's that whole you know kind of process versus content concept. Uh, I think when it comes to us as a context, we can get very lost in the content if we're not aware of who and what we are. If you arrive at that place in a session with a client where you feel like you're sort of spinning around from detail to detail and we're not processing the way that we might need to or the way that would make the session productive, Mm -hmm. do you have a standard way to approach that? scenario so uh, 
I probably don't have a completely standard way of approaching anything, as you probably would have guessed at this point. But I I would say like I most often say something like if I like look up and I kind of like realize like, oh, like I don't know where I'm at. Like, I don't know how we got here. I usually just say that again, like that's in keeping with this like authentic, you know, again, more than anything, if I don't know what else to do, I just say something that's like fairly like blatantly honest or transparent. And I'm like, wait, wait a second. Can we just like pause? Cause I don't know how we ended up here and I'm not really sure where we're going. You know, what, what's the purpose in, in this kind of line of thought or something like that? I mean, I don't, it probably sounds fairly different depending again on the client and whatever, but I just, I've gotten to the point, especially now, and this was taught to me by some of my like old Adlerian heads, because I'm a big Adlerian therapist. And and that's really a lot of who taught me. And they're like, they've really impressed this idea on me that like, we have 50 minutes, often 50 minutes a week. And we're supposed to help somebody figure out how to change their lives like that. It, like when you just look at it just like that, that seems like an absolutely ridiculous thing. Like, it just seems impossible. Like, I understand why societally people are like, there's no way therapy can work. There's no way I'm just going to talk with somebody for 50 minutes a week and figure out how to make significant changes. And really, we know that we're just kind of setting a plan of action. If you don't follow through with that action and whatever else, like, you're going to be in the same place. But for me, like, I, I have that in mind and I'm usually drawing some attention to that. Like, I might say like, oh, I've noticed, you know, we're. 30 minutes into the session and, you know, I appreciate the updates, but you know, what are you, what are you really looking to do today? Um, all my, a lot of my supervisees joke with me because I, the most common question that I ask is what's important. So the, a lot of times that's how I start my session. What do you think is most important to talk about today? And that I think is way different than what's going on because what's going on may or may not be important. Like what's going on in your life might not actually be important at all. That might be the problem. So a lot of times if I get lost, I'm trying to get back to this place where it's like, like, what are we here to do? What's the task at hand? I get there's a lot of stuff going on, but what do we want to do? I think for me, sometimes when that happens, it's often abrupt. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll just realize we got there. Yeah. And I'll I'll say, hey, man, how do you think this is going? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah been there. And then they'll stop and look at you and they'll be like, that's obviously a pointed question. Mm -hmm. So the implication is that I might have questions about what we're doing. And they'll say, I thought it was going good. Or, you know, maybe I'm not doing what I should. I don't know. And they'll ask you, like, how do you think it's going? Yeah. And that would be the point at which I would say, I'm not sure. Yeah. And I'm wondering if we're covering the ground that we need to. Yeah. Feels like maybe we might not be. And I'm curious of what your experience of this is. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, talking about like kind of being early on. And like, I think that's how a lot of us felt like most often when we started in this field, because we didn't know. So we wouldn't ask questions like that because we were scared of the answers. And I think that's like the more comfortable you get both with yourself as a therapist, like as a counselor, as you know, whatever mentor kind of role we're serving in, you get comfortable asking those questions because it's like, yeah, if, if I don't know where we're at, like it's probably a problem because usually I do like usually I had some like handle on the process, um, you know, pretty well at this point. And it's like, but yeah, there's those times where you just kind of get to that point where you're like, wait a second, how do we get here? 
Um, oh, when I was new, I was just excited that anyone was talking to me. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, yeah, it's not that much different now in terms of like, it really is like as important as it is to progress and do work and all of those things. That's this relationship thing. If people don't feel comfortable and safe and just like approachable, like especially and and I feel like this is especially true of men in therapy. Um, so many of us were socialized to not talk about problems. And if we did, we were taught to be angry about it. So that doesn't that's not really conducive to a conversation. So you have to be able to to me, like one of the hardest tasks in therapy is creating a trusting, safe environment with people who really like maybe have never like at any point in their relation or, or in their life really had relationships where they felt that kind of safety to just like be honest and authentic and just say how they're feeling and 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 all of those kinds of things without the fear of judgment. And so. You know, again, it's it's always a tricky line of like that that redirecting because all the students are always asking like, well, how do I how do I redirect? How do you like learn how to interrupt people and do some of those kinds of things? Because um, it's not easy and it's not often thought of as nice. And actually, that would be coded as low domineering, by the way, from a SPAF perspective is, is what uh, domineering, like kind of interrupting or, or doing some quote unquote control taking of the conversation. And we've talked a lot about that in our research as well, we, we joke about bobblehead therapy that, that bobblehead that just like nodding along, like whatever they say, like, don't get me wrong. Like normalizing and validating is absolutely the core of therapy. And if again, people don't feel that safety, that's a problem. But on the other hand, we kind of know at this point, Rogerian therapy is a good base, but it's not enough. It's funny. Oftentimes when you get a new therapy client, I'll always ask, what's your experience in psychotherapy? Have you ever done it before? For sure, yeah. And they'll give some response about their experience. They've worked with some other therapist somewhere or treatment program or Mm -hmm. whatever it was. And you ask, how'd that go? They're kind of laying it out for you of the what not to do. Right. You know, or if they had a good experience with that person, at what point did the therapy end? Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you'd done with the work that you needed to do? And if so, and it was a good experience, just curious, why wouldn't you call that person again right. if you need therapy this time? So I, I want to know all those things yeah. because a lot of times the answers to those questions to me are clinical indicators. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell you where the process may be faltered. And even just preferences. Like it gives you that idea because like different people want different things. And like a lot of times people will explicitly tell their therapist what they're looking for. Like, I want you to be direct. And then people dance around the topic or they they aren't able to like cut somebody off or all these things that, again, are uncomfortable for them as a person. Most therapists, like I like to think, are pretty like nice, genuine people in general. Nice, genuine people like usually aren't that good at cutting people off. Um, nice. And sometimes that's important. <laughs> nice, genuine people who become therapists sometimes have codependent traits. Right. Sometimes are people pleasers. Right. Sometimes really are seeking validation Mm -hmm. through the clients of their own unmet needs. 
That's the tough stuff that we were talking about before, right? So if I'm a bobblehead in therapy, because I just, what's most important to me is that you're comfortable at all times in the process Mm -hmm. and that you like me while we're talking. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm really helping you move in any direction that's meaningful because you probably have other people in your life who are already doing this. Right. So you don't need to pay me. You don't need to talk to me like this. You probably have a friend or somebody. I recently had a, a new case, a woman who reached out to me and wanted to do some work on some things. When we were talking, I asked that same question, you know, what's your previous experience with therapy? And she said, yeah, I was working with someone. I was working with this woman for a number of months, but she kind of became like a friend. Yeah. And I hear that all the time. I don't think we were doing what we needed to. So I'm looking for something else. Yeah. So that's a pretty good trail of breadcrumbs for me. Because if I start to feel like we're overly familiar or it's too friendly, guess what? I have recreated for her her last clinical experience. Sure. And in general, I mean, that's and that's to me like a lot of the wisdom that came out of the Gottman research, which people who are familiar with the Gottman research on couples relationships. I mean, they've been doing this research for 40 years now, uh, probably longer than that, I guess now. But, um, you know. Conflict is super important. People don't realize like the importance of conflict in a relationship that when people tell me and I'll, I'll have even like, you know, friends or acquaintances or whatever, they're like, oh, we never fight, which may just be like a social thing, right? Like they don't want to like admit that they fight, but it's like when it, that's whenever the, I, that's the Facebook version of the relationship, right? Like whenever I hear a couple though, that they're like, oh yeah, we don't ever fight. I'm like, wow, I guess there's no safety in that relationship. I don't say that, but I'm thinking like there, if there's real safety in a relationship, you're going to have some conflict. And if any of us recall our closest, most intimate relationships, that's probably the person you have a decent amount of conflict with. And that's a lot of times, obviously, what we're teaching couples. But I think also what we have to teach our counselors in training is how to have conflict in an appropriate pro-social way. You know, I, I say a lot of times, like in therapy, my most common self-disclosures in therapy are things like, wow, like I'm feeling pretty frustrated or I'm, I'm kind of feeling angry right now. Um, and it might be on behalf of them or, you know, any number of things, but those kinds of things of just disclosing ourselves, like how we're feeling in the space. Cause I think a lot of times the clients, you know, people have trouble disclosing how they feel. And if we're really there empathetically connected with them, hopefully you at least know how they're feeling. And again, that goes back to like the, the context of self, like hopefully we're objectively approaching our work to the extent that. It's not our feelings. It's not like when I say like, oh, I'm feeling pretty angry. It's not that like I'm can't manage my anger. It's that I can feel their, you know, they might be smiling or laughing it off or it's no big deal, but I can feel what's really going on. I like to look at family of origin with mm-hmm. stuff like that. Of course. And like you said, the whole thing about safety of where someone may have learned or not learned conflict is an okay thing. You know, so there were some homes where only certain people were allowed to get angry. Oh, for sure. Disagreeing with somebody could really have a huge cost. Yeah. So if your attachment style and your style of interaction is to be avoidant, and that's what you learned, 
then that's probably what gets recreated for you in other relationships. Of course. And when you're sitting across from your therapist, I mean, you see the avoidance all the time Mm -hmm. of conflict because they don't want to say something disagreeable. And actually, in my experience, it's often those people that don't disagree or won't enter the conflict or won't do that part of the relationship with the therapist that just kind of quietly disappear from the process. That's right. It becomes something will occur that they can't tolerate Mm -hmm. and it just becomes easier to avoid and vanish. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the danger of being a therapist who's not willing to make therapeutic confrontations that if you're just kind of quote unquote co-signing, if you're doing some of these like codependent behaviors, you're not actually engaging in a therapeutic process. You are pretty much just acting as a friend. It's just that you're more expensive than their other friends. So like, what the hell are you really doing? And honestly, I think that's even, you know, those are the kinds of things that's even important in doing our own therapy. Like when a client says to me, like, oh man, like 150, 175, you know, a lot of my colleagues charge 250 an hour. Um, that, that hurts. Well, I felt that pain. Like, I know what that was like when I was paying that price for a year and a half. Like, I I know those kind of like real authentic elements and people pull away from those pieces of genuine processes. And, you know, one thing that that Dr. Peluso always used to tell me in my training that still sticks with me all the time today is if you're not going to talk about it, they won't. If you're not going to talk about sex and money and whatever it is, conflict, like all these concepts well, they're not going to bring it up. We're we're taught societally not to talk about the things that most of the time I want to be talking about in therapy. Like whatever the problem is, I want to talk about it. I don't want to be talking around it. Um, and if we don't have those kinds of, again, genuine sorts of discussions, like we can't and I think shouldn't expect our clients to. You know, how are we going to expect this authenticity Um and not give it. And that to me is, you know, I think self-disclosure even as a concept should basically be like a whole course in our masters. And instead it's like a footnote in one of most of our classes that it's like, oh yeah, like only disclose if you like absolutely have to and have a very, very good reason. It's like, well, no, like that's talking about how we feel and, and, and our, uh, again, who and what we are in this very real relationship, uh, really sets the basis for the kind of trust we're going to have. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think it comes back a lot to when we're doing it. You got to take a look at, is this, I'm just asking myself the one question. Mm-hmm. Is this in service of me or is it right. in service of them? That's it. Because I'm talking about it because it's what I want to talk about and in some way validates me. And that masquerades as therapeutic for the oh, other yeah. person. That That's a miss on my part. I've done it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think everybody has. And you look back on that and you're like, I, I probably could have left that one in the chamber. You yeah. know what I mean? I didn't really need to tell them about like my experience with the exterminator and how pissed off I was about it. Like yeah. that. I don't know that that really helped Dan at all. Yeah. But but I fucking did it, you right. know. Um No, and I and I and yeah, and don't uh, you know, I don't want anybody definitely to like misconstrue what I'm saying because I think we've all seen that way too often or again that for me is one of the most common things i hear when i'm like oh like tell me about how therapy went for you before they're like oh they seem to just like kind of chat with me and like talk about their like day and what i'm like what the hell were they doing like what was somebody doing when they were like going into that but again i think it's like 
because they don't know. No, nobody ever taught them that it's like if you're not constantly thinking like that's what you're paying me for. Right. Like you can't pay me for the relationship. You can't pay me for a lot of stuff uh, that I'm authentically bringing here. But what you absolutely pay me for is my attention. And my attention should always be on you, not on me. When when um, it's funny, like when, I, when I'm working with a client and they're talking about you know, past experience in therapy, one of the complaints that you'll often hear is when the relationship becomes overly familiar, mm-hmm. the therapist becomes very comfortable talking about themselves. And the complaint of the client will be, well, he or she was always talking about themselves. Oh, yeah. And I think inside myself, I get a little cringy when I hear that. Yeah. And if I'm reacting to that internally, what that means is I have a fear that Mm -hmm. I could do that. Sure. And today I'm comfortable to embrace that. Mm -hmm. And by embracing that and even saying that to someone like you in a conversation like this, probably make me less likely to actually do it in therapy because I have the awareness of if I'm reactive to that, if the hearing that about someone else makes me feel kind of cringy inside, there's some part of me that identifies with it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got to I gotta be aware of that. And, and maybe I'm just lucky because I tend to get to like sort of pick the cream of the crop uh, when it comes to interns and that sort of thing. But it's usually the opposite is the problem. And that's why I'm even kind of talking about this, especially when it comes to the like authentic relationship because people, it's so hammered in their head, like really almost like a psychoanalytic kind of concept that like don't talk about yourself at all. And it and that also comes across as weird. And I hear that feedback a lot, too. They're like, you know, the, the most kind of basic one you always hear about when it comes to substance abuse treatment is are you an addict? And it's like how I was taught, literally the very first supervision I ever had on that. That was one of my interview questions at at one of the first rehabs I ever worked at. And, uh, you know, they're they're basically coaching me in the direction. I don't even remember what I answered, to be completely honest. But I remembered the coaching was you need to ask like a number of questions before you're even telling them anything or whatever the case is. And to me, that starts to become it's more about me now. Like now I'm literally teaching them avoidance, whereas now if somebody's like, oh, hey, are you an addict? I'm like, nope. And then we move on. Like sometimes I'm like, why would you take 10 minutes of your 50, a fifth of a session to discuss this concept when sometimes they're just genuine, like they just kind of want to know. So, again, I'm not saying there's like any universal answer. I'm also not saying I judge anybody for how they answer these questions, because I think it is like a delicate and personal choice how we approach that. I also think, though, sometimes about if you're taking so much of this holy little time that we have to, you know, get to the bottom of of why they're asking, like, what are you really doing? Sure. Because that that becomes in service of me. Right. <laughs> and probably in service of my own insecurity that sure. I am not a recovering person. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a person who is in recovery from substance use disorder in this relationship right. and therefore have some insecurity about like my credibility with the client. Right. If I'm tap dancing around it or I can't answer the question or I won't answer the question or I'm uncomfortable answering the question. That's a problem too. A fundamental difference, I think, between good boundaries and rigid boundaries. Yeah. Right? And some people would say it's one and the the same. 
Right. And if you're working with certain populations, maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Right. I think if you're specializing in treating sex offenders, for example, sure. Rigid boundaries are good boundaries. Mm-hmm. Other populations, maybe, maybe less so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, again, and that's, I'm not seeking to kind of define it, but that's kind of the point is I think Freud said a lot of crazy things, which like, I mean, he did a lot of Coke, so that makes sense. But um, I think that he was an improviser too, man. He was just like kind of feeling his way through his process. He was figuring it out. I mean, again, that's the thing when you're in uncharted territory, like you can only blame somebody so much if they get lost. But I say that to say like one of the things, and I think really like the reason that he is kind of the father of this field is he said neuroses is the inability to tolerate ambiguity. And I think so often like we as the, the therapist are uncomfortable with that ambiguity that like there isn't a clear, rigid answer. I would love to like give you a script of what makes sense, but what makes sense depends on so many things. It depends on the client. It depends on the setting. It depends on you and how you're feeling and all these other things that it's like, I can't give you something canned. I mean, I could. And again, maybe that would be like, if you don't know what to do, rigid boundaries is the answer. <laughs> like if you feel lost, 100% do it by the book. But if you're going to do great therapy, if you're going to do what I imagine to be like life altering work, you're going to have to get a little more authentic than that. Like you're going to have to bring more of yourself to the room. If you expect that this person who's been to, you know, a dozen, 20, 50 rehabs, if you think they're going to somehow have a different experience with you, you're probably going to have to do something different. Um, and I think that that concept is is lost on people. And look, I also acknowledge like that's a dangerous concept to discuss because unfortunately, a lot of people in this field are unboundaried. Um, so, again, that's not something that I would just say to anybody like these kinds of discussions. That's why these discussions need to happen in supervision and or your own personal therapy. Absolutely. So coming back to your research, because there was something I wanted to get into with sure. you about that, and I didn't want to miss it. Because in the um, in one of your papers, it talked about that, well, the evidence anyway, mm-hmm. was that the relationship itself seemed to exceed um, the form of therapy or the actual theory. technical the theory, and that you tested that among a few different theories. Mm-hmm. You tested that among a few different theories, and it was kind of like all things being equal, but the relationship was sort of a determining factor. Sure. So th- the way that – and this was really my dissertation, which we then updated the math and have recently published – that article in psychotherapy research. Um, and to understand that we have to start with the context, which maybe you remember the, um, those like original, uh, they were called the Gloria or they've come to be called the Gloria films, um, which was where there was the single client who met with three different therapists of that day, um, which it was like Fritz Pearls. Uh, Albert I think Ellis, I saw that. And, yeah. Most people saw it in their training. That was like the first mm. time that they like compared theory in video. So a lot of people don't know, they actually did an updated version of that fairly recently. 
And John Carlson kind of helped moderate that. But then it was these three different therapists representing a theory. So it was Leslie Greenberg doing emotionally focused therapy, Nancy McWilliams doing psychodynamic theory, and Judith Beck doing cognitive therapy. And they had a single session with a male client and a single session with a female client. Um, So for us, this was like, oh, this is like an amazing snapshot to see these three therapists working with the same client. So we took that snapshot and we did all of our stuff with it, our SPAF coding. And then we take and and a lot of what we're doing now is working with these uh, predictive math models, which just to like explain that simply think like the way that we the the models that they create for hurricanes. So especially like down here in Florida, everybody's seen whether you know it or not, you've seen complex systems, mathematical modeling in the form of hurricane modeling. Only for us, think about things like humidity and air pressure and wind speed and replace those with SPAF codes, replace those with contempt and anger and validation and affection, for example. So then we make these again in really the same sorts of ways, these predictive mathematical models Um, And I say all that just to say we've developed this model that we know discriminates in that the male client compared with the female client, for example, in my study in particular, were statistically different. They were significantly statistically different, meaning, okay, we know the model has the ability to discriminate, whereas if we compared the therapists, so each therapist working with the client, there was no significant differences. So even though these three folks are supposedly in a very like high fidelity way doing their theories and they're, you know, very experienced therapists in that particular theory, it looked the same in the math, meaning like the affect, this affectual interaction part, the affect looked the same. So to the untrained eye, basically this objective view, um, It looked pretty similar. So conceivably, a quote unquote bad therapist working with any theory, it wouldn't have looked the same. Like that would have been noticeable. And we've seen that in the other therapy, which you can kind of tell, like it's literally on, you know, a mathematical plane. So you can kind of see what like a four quadrant plane. You can see where the therapy is kind of looking from an affective perspective. So we basically we know that this model can predict return or dropout, which was what we talked about a second ago, we know that it's a mathematical model that works even within this study, but the therapist basically looked similar. They weren't the same, but relationally it looked similar. And even they did a round table with these therapists. And that was actually some of the things that we really noted in that article is all the therapists, just like you and I were talking about, really came to these same conclusions. Like one of them even said, I was struck more by the similarities between us than the differences. All of them like kind of attended to the same things. All of them were mindful of these relational elements. So even though they were using these very supposedly like, again, specific theories, it was very clear in our minds anyways, and the conclusion we drew from the evidence, theories for the therapist. But that relational element is a theoretical like all three of them had they not attended to connecting with the client and quickly building that relationship while also working on the problems that they presented with they would have missed the boat doesn't really matter 
what theory, which is really something we've known since the advent of meta-analysis. And, and for folks who are familiar with the concept of like, we've kind of known that the theory isn't really a strong predictor of outcome. We, we've known that for a long time. Gotcha. So this was just, again, a very specific, even though it's a very kind of cross-sectional, very small look inside, it was unique in that that's really arguably the only time in history where highly advanced therapists did something in this way and we were able to objectively kind of look at it. So when you're having the experience of your hypothesis Mm -hmm. and it's kind of come together, your hypothesis, your theory, it's kind of being borne out by the research. It looks like it is what you hoped it would be. Mm -hmm. What is that like? for you to put all that energy, all that time into that and to find out that essentially you were right. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, and honestly, like it was, it's something that we had thought a lot about. And again, it's something that the, the meta analytic research, which just for folks to kind of know meta analysis is basically a common statistical language to take a whole bunch of research. So instead of a review of a handful of studies, like we're talking hundreds of thousands of clients in terms of of statistical power. And we're looking uh, basically to conglomerate that data and kind of see what we can find. All that kind of research showed this concept already. So it's like that kind of makes sense, right? That like, it really doesn't matter the theory therapy has this kind of certain level of efficacy in general, which is really pretty high. Um, we just kind of had this like kind of smaller look and yeah, I mean, it's definitely validating and gratifying at the same time. It's like to us almost like concerning that it's not really being focused on. And like one of my concerns is I'm all for evidence-based practices and all of those kinds of things. But a lot of us in this quote unquote common factors research, things like the therapeutic relationship and empathy and collecting and using client feedback All these things that have been shown to be demonstrably effective in therapy through research isn't really being focused on. And and really, that's largely because things that are more manualized and more, uh, you know, these kind of discrete evidence based practices, they're just easier to research. So that's why people are researching them more. So a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, CBT is the best because there's so much research on it. Well, no, it's just the easiest to research. It's way harder to research these like therapeutic concepts. So it's a it's it's sort of like a mixed feeling that I have of like it's very exciting because I want to understand the art that is psychotherapy. And my fear is, is that we, you know, we've become overly manualized to the extent that we're losing our souls. We're again, we're not authentically connecting. We're not, you know, being real people. Um there's definitely a push in that direction. There is. And I think at the heart of that is insurance companies. Yeah. And third party payers and Sure. And, and I and I get that. And I, I understand, you know, again, like systemically like what we're doing. And I'm not I'm not mad about it. Like I think that's a great because I think we do, especially based on again, all of the nonsense that's also happened like thankfully that's cutting out a lot of the just you know 
charlatanism, basically, and like the snake oil salesmanship that has been done, you know, throughout the history of psychotherapy. So I'm glad we're professionalizing as a field. And I love that we're becoming more scientific. Like I'm not at all one of the people who's like fighting against that, because I think there was like an element of like, it got kind of like wild, wild west, especially in substance abuse treatment. As we well know, people were just doing some nonsense. What to you, like if you're if you were going to go through the psychotherapy hall of fame mm-hmm. for like worst charlatanism, what would be like of all the kind of trendy things that came along? What do you what what is do you think the worst, the most unproven is do you have a a top one? I mean, I, that's a tough question. For it, me, it is. It is. It's a great question, but I mean, and and I think like the the lowest hanging fruit there for me is like things like conversion therapy, or really like that's the top. Which if people aren't familiar with conversion therapy, that's like this idea that we're going to change somebody from gay to straight, which obviously had like a big cultural element, and that is probably in general though my answer of like these things that were very culturally laden and very. They were just very like targeted from like a socio-political perspective, but had no real science behind it. Especially uh, if you're pathologizing. Right. Because that, that's what's underneath is that you're actually pathologizing someone's sexuality. Yeah. And and that's and that's like it, you know, like sexuality should be treated. Right. And that's far and away like the most yeah. uh, egregious in like recent history in terms of therapy. Hey man, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Did I put you on the spot in a bad way by asking you that question? No, I actually, I really like that question. Well, because I'm just like, you know what, man? He's a university professor and a researcher. And I just maybe just asked him to shit on another theorist or something. And that that may have been like an uncool thing to do. I I think it's really just that. Now I'm going to get in trouble. uh, No, I I don't worry much these days about getting in trouble as as most of my colleagues know. I I do. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't. That's kind of my, I've always been sort of like rebellious in that regard. But I, I think a lot of it has been more like when it comes to the theoretical stuff, I feel like it's more that theories have just fallen short and people sold it as enough. So it's not any like one theory, but it's like, again, even Rogerian, like Carl Rogers brought something that was unbelievable to this field in terms of the relational element. But if when people say like, especially students are like, Oh yeah, I'm like a very person centered therapist. I'm like, Oh great. So you like, don't do any work. Like that's my first thought of like, it's not enough. Well, I think that was the movement towards eclecticism, right? Sure. Where where you're going to be more of a hybrid and you can use different things because I, I think ultimately where we landed with the Rogerian and person centered is, that unconditional positive regard is a skill and a tool. Right. But it's not in and of itself the full therapeutic yeah. intervention. And just like the therapeutic relationship. So people tell me, they're like, oh, so you're saying like the relationship is all we need, like kind of toss out the other stuff. It's like, no, not at all. Like we still need theory. I think everybody should have, you know, not even just like the kind of technical eclecticism that like, yeah, ultimately I am technically eclectic, like most of us or really all of us are, but we should have a theory or a couple theories that we really base our work in. Like all of my cases are conceptualized in a very psychodynamic leaning Adlerian way. Like I'm thinking of the case, like you said, kind of from that, you know, family dynamic, family constellation kind of concept. 
but that's for me. That's to give me like a working model of where we're going. But when it comes to the work in terms of how I'm going to get there, for me, it depends on the research. And that's a line of research that I'm really excited about. And that's like some of the John Norcross stuff and what a lot of these guys in the common factor space are looking at. That's what I was going to ask you is what for you comes next? Where where are you going? Yeah. And I think that to me, like all of this, and that's like even, you know, Dr. Rob Freund, Dr. Paul Peluso have a couple chapters and they had a chapter in John Norcross's book and they have another chapter in, in the upcoming book. Um, You know, to me, what people are doing in the common factor space is not to like spit on or fly in the face of theory or anything else. It's to say that there's also this other element we really need to be attentive to. And that's what I like in particular. There's a lot of these thoughts. Um, like one of the things in particular is like looking at uh, like where you're at in terms of stages of change with a particular problem and then using different theories depending on the stage of change. Another way to think about it is thinking of presenting problems. So for example, when it comes to stage of change, like what we know in our field, obviously motivational interviewing and motivational enhancement therapy, like should be a part of what we're all doing. Like if we're not moving within the spirit of MI, which is just this concept of like rolling with resistance and like resistance doesn't exist. Like my therapist always used to tell me, which I still think about it, all the time across from every resistant client sits a very stubborn therapist. Resistant therapist. Yeah, sure. Right. So like that idea of like, we have to learn to roll with that. Um, That's one way of thinking about it. And again, the other way is like it, as it should depends on the client. So it's like, if my client is presenting with kind of like these heavy borderline personality traits and they're very dysregulated and all this kind of stuff, I'm going to focus on the DBT skills first. So it's not to say that I'm a DBT therapist. Again, I'm always thinking Adlerian. I'm always thinking narrative. That's my other kind of main theory that I think from. But what that person needs in that moment is this, you know, the classic four skills, right? Like if you can't tolerate distress, you can't be present and mindful. If you don't know how to be mindful, you can't regulate your emotions. If you can't regulate your emotions, you can't be interpersonally effective. I get that. Like, that's a simple kind of concept. So it's like, I'm going to approach that person differently than somebody that comes in with this like longstanding, very existential depression. If I'm talking to somebody with a longstanding existential depression about DBT skills, they're like, bro, I'm not distressed. I haven't moved in years. Like, I don't need to learn how to tolerate distress. Like the best thing that could happen is for me to become emotionally dysregulated with you. That would I would love to be, be dysregulated. We'd like that to see would mean you get I actually excited. Like feel something, right? So it's like, like if you could do that, short of like keying my car, that would be cool, <laughs> right? And that's and that's what they're looking for. So it's like, okay, I'm going to start hitting you with some existential questions. We're going to get really philosophical. Maybe I'll use some act, and we'll really center on identity and but whatever. So but what's a like, cool what's a cool existential question? What would you? ask somebody. Oh, it's, it, it depends on a lot of things. But for me, like one of the things that I've come to do, because I work with a lot of people who struggle with suicidality and a lot of like one of the, the basic, I mean, you know, what's always been discussed is the first existential question is, should you kill yourself? Every other question after that is a question after that. But that's the first question. So that's like one of the concepts that comes up a lot when somebody says like, you know, I've, I've really been thinking about killing myself for a long time. A lot of times the question is, well, 
why, you know, what are reasons not to? And we immediately launch into this, what I imagine to be almost like problem solving. But for people who have been considering suicide for a decade, which is a lot of our clients, a lot of times, uh, they've already thought it like this is not a problem to be solved. We're not just going to go in here and be like, oh, like, but your mom will be sad and then they're better. Like that doesn't that's not enough. Like, again, that's kind of like what we we're talking about of like doing the same thing that other people can do. So I tend to ask questions like, why haven't you done it yet? You know, what's what's behind it? You know, and then they might talk about like their hopes of one day what they could do or, you know, all of those kinds of things. So that's a lot of times where that discussion really is starting, because if anybody has longstanding depression, they have considered killing themselves. Maybe they haven't dug into it. Maybe they haven't sat with it, whatever. But if you've ever been depressed for a very long time, you have assuredly thought about it. Um, so, again, and, and I'm not saying that's actually 100 percent of the time, but you know what I mean? <laughs> More the rule than the exception. I think so, I think, too, you know, with people, it's OK to have that conversation. I think for sure. I, th- I think we have really stigmatized the discussion because this. Absolutely. You know, once you talk, once you say it, it becomes real. And then we're one step closer to having to act and put someone in a hospital. Yeah. But I think there's a fundamental difference between the idea of killing oneself or the fantasy or the idea of like non-existence and how much easier that may seem and how much relief someone might draw if they're, if they've been actively suffering for a long period of time. And if we can't normalize it, then we can't have real conversations. I mean, again, this is another one of those things that everybody in the room clams up when you talk about sex or suicide or, uh, you know, there's all kinds of topics that we're not supposed to talk about. And if we don't make these things, things that we can talk about, then we're not actually talking about what we need to be talking about. We're Again, then you're just kind of like paying for a friendship. Then you're just chatting. Then you're getting into this space that's kind of non-therapeutic and you got to talk about it. And to me, that's that like real tangible uh, interventive assessment, which is another thing that I think in terms of what I'm excited about, like what's important is like we have to learn how to do assessment in a way that is engaging and connecting because if we are just this computerized sort of robot guess what it already exists like you literally can go through computerized models of like very concrete assessment that's not what somebody's coming to you for somebody's coming to you to really actually wrestle with these things emotionally and if you don't make it something that's comfortable to talk about I mean, even if it's always going to be a little uncomfortable, but if you don't make it comfortable enough to really process, like, what are you doing? You're not really engaging somebody in a uh, a really connecting process. So for me, that's, again, uh, probably what I'm most often discussing. But really, in general, it's just thinking about the ways that we make meaning. If people aren't thinking about the way that we make meaning of our existence, we're not, uh, I think, going to make values-based decisions and we're not going to live authentically. Um, so a lot of times, like existential therapy, as I think about it, is really just thinking about, again, th- those concepts. And if life is, sometimes I'll conclude or, you know, clients will conclude as I'm kind of discussing with them, well, Life is perfectly inherently meaningless. Okay, that's fantastic. I actually 
have concluded that also myself, by the way, that maybe there is inherently no like deeper, richer, broader meaning, um, although I'm open to other things. But let's say that it is. Well, great. I get to decide. Whatever I decide is most meaningful to me, then it is, um, which means for me anyways, my number one value is easing the suffering of others. That is to me what I'm here for. Not that somebody put me here, not that I evolutionized to this point, or I just made a choice that that's what I'm going to dedicate my life to and that's what I'm going to do. And this is the way that I'm going to do it. I don't think I'm some hero or whatever else. And I think there's probably way too much saviorism in this space, but it's like, I want to somehow like the idea that somebody like breathed easier today because of a conversation I had with them that brought my life tremendous meaning today. So let me ask you this. You got anything that you're working on currently in terms of research or yeah. So our lab is always doing a handful of different things. And I would say like the thing that I'm most excited about is we actually have IRB approval to start recording at comprehensive wellness centers. So So, hold hold on a second. mm -hmm. Just what is IRB? Basically we got university permission to start doing our recording in the way that we did at the counseling center at the university. You're not violating any human right by doing it. And obviously that would still be with the express permission of, of, uh, the clients that would choose to enter into that. Okay, so now, so now at Comprehensive Wellness, you're really moving more in the direction of this kind of teaching hospital situation right. because now you could do research there, right? And I'll and we actually got this approval. Um, what it would have been, I guess, like last March, basically, or not last March, but the March before, and literally like two weeks before everybody was wearing masks. And mind you, we do facial expression research. So literally. Oh, no. And I mean, mean like, literally got the cameras there. The cameras are still, like, at the center. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Wow. So we we got approval, got the cameras there. Basically, like, we were ready to get started. I had all my interns, all that kind of stuff. And in a matter of a month, all the universities pulled the interns. So that's great. Like, I mean, obviously, I don't depend on on those interns, but our internship program is a big part of how we're constructed. What a terrible thing for them, man. Yeah. So it was, it was weird and people ended up coming back. We did a lot of telehealth stuff as a lot of other people did. Although we remained doing in-person groups throughout the entire time. Um, We started, you know, enforcing mask wearing very early on. Um, we also, a lot of the staff got access to vaccines like very early because we were still doing in-person work. So anyways, all of that to say my next immediate goal and what we're working on as a lab really is nobody has done, uh, this kind of objective work in the substance abuse treatment space. And we all know the reasons why I'm, it's not easy. (laughs) Like it's not, uh, it's not an easy space in general in terms of just the kind of, uh, natural chaotic nature of the work, um, you know, it makes that kind of stuff tricky. But that's my next goal is I really want to start to get some, again, even more real world data. Um, and also then obviously I have more of a level of control over the kinds of assessment that we're doing and all of that kind of stuff. Because when you're in somebody else's space, I'm just taking what I can get. Like we have our relational measures and some stuff that we do, obviously, with that research. But in terms of 
my ultimate dream and our dream as a lab again is to have real world outcome measures in anxiety, depression, substance abuse, whatever. And can we start to see how the therapeutic relationship is impacting those kinds of outcomes? So it sounds like for you, you know, given the research that you've already done, your piece of this is to be able to take that and apply it in a real world circumstance. Right. With the you know, the students that you've trained, the young therapists mm-hmm. that you've trained, and to be able to do that with actual clients that are being treated. Right. And to sort of translate all of this research, everything that you kind of like discovered and um, validated in the lab, and then put it in practice. Right. Which is really cool and seems to serve that larger agenda that you have of, hey, maybe if we show the application of it in a particular area of comorbid disorders that this is working that these therapists were getting better outcomes as a result of this mm-hmm. maybe then you get the type of attention that you're hoping for looking for if you can get the outcomes to demonstrate to demonstrate that it, that it's effective yeah and and, 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 and saves money right and, well and, and and yeah not only that but like the the added benefit to me of like again starting to use this as a supervisory tool and to kind of really find evidence because that's even like in and of itself, like is a therapist who's SPAF trained versus a therapist who's not more attentive to things, which obviously we think that they would be, you know, we're trained to see things that other people literally don't see. I mean, that's even like for us, a lot of the micro expression training and a lot of those kinds of things theoretically, you know, should uh, give us a higher level of, uh, insider attention or however you want to think about it into how somebody's feeling at a given time. How did I go 20 years without knowing what a unilateral cheek pull was? I, I don't know, man, but you know, now I do know and, now And actually, if people are interested, just so people are aware, it, it's called the micro expression training tool, the met, um, which is still available online. Like if you just look up Paul Ekman, you can do the micro expression training tool training, um, and learn how to pick up on these micro expressions, which again is really kind of a very small part of, of what we do more broadly. But there's all kinds of these different trainings to attend to basically nonverbals in general. Cause as we as therapists know, like so much of our quote unquote intuition is based on basic things like the, you know, one of the most classic is that recognition reflex of even if somebody doesn't like what you just said, you can tell when they like heard it and kind of like, oh, damn, like they saw me. And for somebody to feel that like they really like understand me at a deeper level gives me this feeling like, oh, now I understand myself at a deeper level. Like I'll tell you, this is like a perfect example in terms of like my own experience in therapy. Like I was talking to my therapist about I don't know. I was basically bragging like I do because I'm kind of an arrogant asshole sometimes, as a lot of people will tell you. I think I've done a lot of work on that, but I guess you'd have to ask my wife if you really want to know how well I'm doing. But I was like basically talking about how I'm like brutally honest. This was a number of years ago. And and he's like, you know, it, it's fine to be honest. And honesty is, of course, a great thing. But it sounds like you're just using that as an excuse to be an asshole. And Like, that's the kind of thing that it's like that intervention, like changed my thought on like how I 
approach my interpersonal relationships. And it's like, if you just took that as like a single soundbite, you're like, that probably wasn't even like a quote unquote, like appropriate intervention or whatever. But we had the relationship at that point And I heard that and I felt seen and understood. And it was such a strong therapeutic challenge. But I, I get it. I get it now. I'm like, oh, even if I know something, even if I have some insight or even if I'm aware of something, it doesn't mean it's my job to make somebody else aware of it. Not if they're not ready to receive it or they can't receive it or whatever else. Or I'm just wrong, which also happens pretty often. Um, so I think those kinds of interventions are, to me, like the essence of that like authentic work. That's great, man. That's really cool. Well, I think that's probably like a solid note to end on. Sure. And uh, Andrew, Dr. Baker. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in, man. It was a real pleasure. I, I kind of, this is one of those things where I kind of feel like it worked out the way I'd hoped it would. You know? Great. I'm glad to hear it. I, I definitely enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate, you know, you guys taking the time and, and this conversation. I think it's hopefully this conversation is being had and, a lot more settings in terms of like you asked that question of like, what do you want to see more of like this? Like I want to see therapists talking about like the heart and soul of the work. Um, well, that now, you know, that brings me to, that's the, that's the purpose of the good counsel podcast is it. to kind of like, you know, bring some attention to all the different forms of like helping relationships that are existing out there, therapeutic and otherwise. But yeah. it is, I wanted to create a forum for these kind of conversations where, yeah. you know, so I don't know, you know, it's it, because as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about, you know, Dr. Frun, Dr. Diaz, and like, oh, maybe, maybe they would like to come and talk about their part of this sure. and all that at some point. So, yeah, absolutely, man. Well, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you very much. And um, yeah, we'll probably end up doing it again at some point. I hope so. Yeah. What, once you start doing the get some outcomes from the research that you're doing at, at, at Comprehensive Wellness, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. I'd be happy to. All right.